This morning I want us to look at two scenes from the end of Jesus' life. The first scene is from the Garden of Gethsemane, and the second scene is on the cross itself. Our focus will be the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. They have a perfect trust in each other. The Son of God, Jesus, is certainly who we usually focus on on Good Friday because he is the man of the hour. But God the Father is there the whole time, walking with him to his death until his last breath. Dante, the great medieval Italian poet who wrote The Inferno, was a Christian and he said this very profound statement, which is, in his will, there is peace. In his will, he's talking about God, in God's will, there is peace. And in this story, we will see what Dante is talking about in reality. We'll see that the Son of God being obedient to his Father, even in the face of the worst kind of suffering, will actually bring peace. So let's turn to scene one, Gethsemane. It's a garden of olive trees, Gethsemane. Perhaps even we think an olive press, like a bit of a farm. And I straight away thought of the Raggetts farm, the olive trees. Some of us went there last year because that's the only real olive grove that I've been to. And I could imagine, I can see why you'd go there to pray because it's kind of peaceful and olive trees aren't like, they're kind of nice to be around, you know. And um, we know from John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, that Jesus and his disciples went to this spot quite a lot, actually, and prayed and hung out together. And that's why in the story, Judas, who betrays Jesus, he knows to go there. He knows to bring the authorities to that spot because it's kind of like the local hangout. Jesus is with some of his closest friends, Peter, James and John, and he really was close to them. He'd really disclosed who he was to them. They knew, I mean, he was disclosing to lots of people who he was, but to them he opened himself up at another level. So um, they saw him shining radiantly at um, what's called his transfiguration, this kind of moment when they got to see him in his kind of, glory um, like many other people have never seen before. Um, They were his privileged best mates. And Jesus now, in this part of the story, is so overwhelmed with stress and sorrow that he needs his mates around him. He just wants them to keep watch for him, which is a reasonable request. His life's in danger. They know that and he knows that. They'd been talking about it and they'd been hearing the stories about people um, wanting to catch him. He just wanted a few hours to pray. And it was also reasonable for Jesus to rely on these three because they'd already told him that they would not betray him, that they would never abandon him. So you might remember if you were here last week, what Peter said in Matthew 26, when he told his disciples this, he said to them, this very night, 
you will all fall away on account of me. And Peter, the leader of the disciples, said, even if all fall away on account of you, I will never fall away. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So it was reasonable for Jesus to rely on them. And he moved to a space in the garden on his own because he just wanted to be praying on his own. And he fell face to the ground in a state of total humility and anguish. I don't know if you've ever prayed in total anguish before or with your face on the ground even. Um, it's a, they, I know that it's good to use your body when you pray to express yourself, how you're feeling. To not Sometimes we are very conservative because we're kind of from a conservative culture, but other cultures know how to express themselves. And Jesus was doing that very thing. When you're praying in anguish, when maybe you're facing a sliding door moment in your life where you're not sure what's going to happen. Um, perhaps you have just had some bad news. Perhaps you're waiting on the result from a doctor that you're not sure what they're going to say. Perhaps you're having to say goodbye to someone you love. It's at these times that we pray to the point of weeping, don't we? And I think it's a great comfort for us to know that Jesus, the Son of God, has gone through that and went through that himself. When we're praying in pain, he listens and knows and feels it with us because he's been there. And this is Jesus' prayer. He says this, My Father, if it is possible, maybe this cup can be taken from me. Please, yet not my will, but as you will. And this prayer went on for an hour. What he's really praying is this. God, God, if it is possible, make it so that I don't have to die. Make it so that I don't have to be captured and tortured, humiliated, ridiculed, and killed by the Roman soldiers. God, if it is possible, please find another way to pay for the sins of the world. God, if it is possible, offer some, something else as a sacrifice. Please make it so that, that I don't have to carry all that weight on my soul. Please don't make it so that my friends and my family and my mum has to watch this all happen in front of them. But really, while that might be what I want, in reality, I just want to do what you want. Jesus lays his life before, the, before his father in utter honesty and trust. This is the astounding level of intimacy that the Son and the Father have together. And what we're seeing here is Jesus facing a really great temptation. Uh, all through his life, he'd faced temptations. And, um, you know, straight away after he's baptised, he's, he's straight into the desert and the devil is tempting him to give up his um, mission with God and to become an earthly ruler. All the time, Satan's trying to change uh, Jesus' mind. Now the voice of the devil, the voice of temptation, is turned up to a maximum volume in his ear, in his mind, in his heart. Everything in him is saying, don't do this, Jesus, don't do it. This is the devil's last-ditch effort to convince Jesus not to fulfil his mission. This prayer went on for an hour 
Perhaps he prayed out loud. Perhaps he sang some psalms. Perhaps he threw his arms around. Then he went back to his disciples but found them sleeping. Couldn't you men just keep watch for an hour, he says? Keep praying, says Jesus, so you don't get tempted to abandon me as I can see that the spirit is willing and your flesh is weak. When I was a kid, I used to get annoyed with the disciples at this point. I used to think, how come they couldn't just stay awake? And uh, I remember doing the Easter play at church when I was in Sunday school and Good Friday. And every time we got to that point, I would get annoyed. But now that I'm older, I know differently. I know that I would have done the exact same thing. I lack faith just like the disciples lack faith. But Gethsemane, this story in the garden is good news for me. Because while I'm hopeless as a disciple, who can't be faithful no matter how hard I try, Jesus is faithful even to the point of death. And he's about to show this. He's about to go to the cross and give me the forgiveness and give us the forgiveness and righteousness that we can't get ourselves because we're not faithful. So Jesus goes back and prays the second time the exact same prayer. Well, pretty much the same. There is a bit of a shift, though, in this second prayer. Look at verse 42. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, and here's a key bit, may your will be done. It's almost as if Jesus... Really, his will is aligning with the Father. He knows really what's got to happen. And now he's sort of saying, everything in me doesn't want to do this, but I want to do what you want to do, ultimately. I want to be in harmony with you, God. And this is a good lesson for us. Sometimes we know what God's will is for us. Sometimes it's completely obvious uh, when we know in our hearts what is true uh, and what we're doing is wrong. Um, perhaps we're angry with someone. Perhaps we hate someone's guts. And every time I walk in the room, we're just like, oh, I just want to walk out when that person walks in the room. And we know that there's a hatred in us that's not healthy, that uh, God doesn't like. And I've found in those times uh, when I've prayed to God that what, to have my will in a line with his will, because I know he wants me to love that person, I find that my heart changes. This is part of what it means to be working at our faith, for us to work with the Spirit of God, to have our wills aligned. Jesus is praying to his Father for his will and the Father's will to be the same. And then he goes back to the disciples, but they've completely fallen asleep by now. They're hopeless. So Jesus prays a third time, another hour, the very same thing. Please give me another option. Please make it so I don't have to die, but may your will be done. And the fact that Jesus prays this prayer of obedience three times will will serve as a nice contrast for us when we go and see Peter, what he's about to do, which is to betray Jesus and be disobedient three times. Try and feel Jesus' deep distress here. Try and imagine what it must have been like for him to, to feel this. And now think about the father and the seriousness of what he's calling his son to do to be rejected and killed in Jerusalem. But God's not forcing this on Jesus. No, their their, their wills are in alignment. They both agree this has got to happen. 
Jesus is deliberately facing this head on. And he can do this because he trusts his Father in heaven. He trusts him. Together they know what's right. And their intimacy and love is so strong that there's no disagreement. We should see Jesus here not as um, some pathetic religious nutcase, but as a hero, someone facing uh, his task head on, his mission, someone embracing obedience at a level none of us will ever have to do. This relationship of trust and loyalty between God the Father and God the Son had been put under scrutiny in Jesus' ministry. Are you really the Son of God? The religious leaders used to say. But even here, he's proving able to survive this test. And it's only when we get to look at the second scene on the cross where we see him come to the point of breaking In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7, it says this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So even at this point, Jesus is learning his obedience, which I think is an amazing thing. Be in awe at his faithfulness. The truth is that Jesus is embracing God's will because he knows that God's in control. This is the most important lesson that we can learn. Despite all the disappointment around him, Jesus goes forward trusting his Father, even though everything looks bad. And we must continue to follow God's will in our lives as well, even when we cannot see what is in front of us. And the most complete revelation of what is in, uh, God wants for us in our lives is the Bible, from which Jesus also learned. Like Job, we will not always have the privilege of knowing the reason or the good that results from events in our lives. But when we rest in God's will, as Dante said, when we rest in God's will, we will find our peace. Human power structures, no matter how powerful they look, are not powerful enough to stop God's will. Our suffering is not foreign to God. Jesus' suffering in his humanity enables him to empathise with us directly in the midst of our pain. And in that empathy, we can affirm God's love for us. Jesus willingly is going to the cross to meet our deepest need of forgiveness so that we can enter the kingdom of God. It is there that we perfectly enter into the peace of God's will. And so learning to enter into God's perfect will is one of the most important goals of our relationship with him. You might have lost your job. You might have failed at school. You or your family member might be seriously sick. You might have a neighbour who is causing you grief. 
You might have committed a terrible sin for which you are ashamed. All of this can be a threat to your stability and your faith. All of this can cause you to think that your life is out of control. But what we learn from Gethsemane is that God is there to walk with us as he walked with his son through anything. If only we turn to him. He's there even to walk with us to our own death. And we will never have to face what Jesus had to face. So let's look look at scene two now, the cross. Jesus had been handed over to the authorities. He'd been given a false trial and sentenced to death. And now we're at the scene of the execution. So the darkness comes over the whole land, it says. If the light reminds us of God and everything that is good and just and right true, the darkness reminds us of everything that is evil and death. But what Jesus is doing is bringing the light into the darkness. This day is God's ultimate judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of darkness. So here God's anger on humanity for crucifying his son is expressed in the elements. His judgment on the sins of the world is manifesting itself in the blackness of the sky. And Jesus is on the cross. Nails in his hands and feet, a crown of thorns around his head, and nailed to the cross is a sign saying, this is Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. When the Romans used to crucify people, what they used to do is uh, write a list of all the things that they'd done wrong, and then they nail it to the cross. So I might have said something like, this is Peter who stole a donkey and then killed someone. And they'd write it on a piece of paper and they'd stick it above your head or on the side of the cross and then when you got crucified. When Jesus died, God, he took all of these accusations that Satan brings against us, all of our failures, all of our shames, all of our rebellion, all of the times that we turned against God and constantly not able to keep his law, And God nailed them to the cross of his son. So there Jesus died on Calvary bearing our sin. And all of those accusations that could be hurled against us were hurled against him instead. And so in verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only is the sky dark, but Jesus' pain is full of darkness. Here, the crucifixion recalls the lament of King David. Centuries earlier, uh, from Psalm 22, verse 1, Jesus is feeling abandoned by his father. And he must be separated from the Father so that he can bear the sins of his people. He takes the punishment for sin. This is the Father's cup of wrath poured out on him in divine judgment. The same cup of wrath that Jesus initially prayed to pass him by, now this cup of wrath was here. It was his Father's will. And now this prayer is being answered. Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, I'll do what you want to do. I want to do what you want to do. 
And that cup of wrath was there now. He told his disciples that his mission was to be a ransom for many, uh, a, a ransom for many, and then he here that prediction is being carried out. This is the atonement being carried out. Jesus suffers our punishment for our sin. On the cross, God showed us his perfect justice and he also showed us his perfect mercy. He demonstrated justice by pouring out his wrath against sin upon sin. He showed mercy by absorbing that wrath himself so that we can escape judgment. You'll see a quote on the back of your booklet, um, um, which I think is a great quote. Because Jesus was filled with absolute horror and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are filled with wonder and cry, My God, my God, why have you accepted me? Because Jesus cried, it is finished, our new life can begin. Because Jesus committed his spirit into the Father's hands, God commits his spirit into our hearts. Because Jesus was perfectly obedient in God's will, we could have peace with God. It got me thinking, Dante's point was profound in a cosmic way. In his will, in God's will, really is our peace because it was his will for Jesus to die. And because of that, we can have peace. Finally, Matthew shows us several testimonies. And if I don't mention this, you're going to go home wondering. So I thought I needed to. Uh, These testimonies that pointed to the significance of Jesus' death. You'll see it in the passage. For example, the temple curtain was torn in two. And this testifies to the fact that all of that stuff that Israel had been doing for centuries with sacrificing lambs and going to the temple and having priests, all of that was now over because Jesus was the great high priest and Jesus was the great temple and people could just go directly to him from now on. People could turn to him and receive forgiveness. The second testimony testimony in the passage that Matthew gives us Pointing to the significance of all of this is the earthquakes and the splitting rocks and the bodies raised from the dead. The earth is reacting to what Jesus had done. Palestine, it was used to having earthquakes, but it wasn't used to having rocks split open and bodies being raised from the dead and walking around. Matthew says that these resurrected bodies were like important people from Israel's history, and they came out of the ground after Jesus had resurrected from the dead. This could only have happened if God was behind all all of these events, which means he must have been behind the earthquake too. This shows us that Jesus really did have victory over the the cross. Now, Now, you might think this is a weird thing, and it is a weird thing. Lots of stuff in the Easter story is weird. Um, and it, you might also think, oh, this is where the Bible sort of goes from history into being <coughs> mythological legend or something. But I want to say that, no, I think that if a man dies on the cross and bears the sins of the world, and this is the most important event in history, and he's, this is God's wrath of judgment pouring on him, then you're going to see weird stuff happen. As one theologian said, The raising of these holy ones, 
that's mentioned in Matthew is a foretaste of the resurrection to which all believers can look forward. Through the death of Jesus, a new day has arrived, a day when death has been defeated by death and resurrection to life eternal has been made possible. The last testimony pointing to the significance of Jesus' death that Matthew records is, comes from two Gentiles, a couple of Gentiles, a centurion and his guards, these Roman soldiers. Uh, this centurion was responsible for 100 soldiers and he'd been around watching the trial and he knew Jesus, the accusations against him. But after seeing all of this, he says, surely he was the son of God. And this is the beginning of faith that comes from understanding Jesus' true identity. The centurion could see that Jesus was innocent and that his perfect obedience to death means that he truly was the man that he claimed to be, which is the Son of God. The religious leaders had mocked Jesus as the Son of God, but the curtain of the temple, the land and the rocks, the sky the faithful people who came out of the tombs, the Gentile centurion and his guards, they all knew his true identity. My prayer for us this Easter morning is that we will wake up and admit to ourselves what we truly know to be true in our hearts which is that Jesus is the Son of God. Because when we do that and admit to ourselves who he really is, we fall in alignment with God's will for us. And we get the benefit of his obedience, which is that peace and that forgiveness, that grace and that love that God wants to give to us. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you can help us to understand this mystery. This thing that seems so bizarre. Some of these events that we record around your crucifixion. We thank you that you wrestled with God in your prayers. Lord Jesus. We thank you that you were obedient to death on the cross. We thank you that you've given us the peace that we can have because of your obedience. Amen.